Welcome to episode 124 of the first 40 miles. If you're new to backpacking or if you're hopelessly in love with someone who wants you to love backpacking, then this podcast is for you. We'll talk about the essentials, how to lighten your load, and how to make the most of your time on the trail. I'm your host, Heather Legler. And I'm Josh Legler. And this is The First 40 Miles. Today on The First 40 Miles, If you're planning your first overnight backpacking trip, we'll talk about a few things that might surprise you. Next on our Summit Gear Review, an all-American pair of socks from a company who set out to create the best sock ever. Then this week's hack will get you outside, then inside, then back outside again. And we'll wrap up with a little trail wisdom from Mr. Frost. All this, and that's about it, today on the first 40 miles. The first time you do something, you really want to know what it's going to be like. Kind of the nitty-gritty, like, what does the place look like? What are we going to do first, and then next, and and then how does it all end? Yeah, what do I need to bring with me? Think about the first day of school for a new kindergartner. And they have all these questions. Of course... All of us, you know, after spending many years, many, many days of school, we know what it's like. We're used to the surroundings. Uh, We know how it's going to go through the day. But that brand new kindergartner on their first day of school could be a little anxious, just wondering what it's going to be like. And usually we help them out by giving them some really simple descriptions of what's going to happen. You know, we're going to take you to the school and we'll walk up to the front door and we'll find your teacher, you know, and there's all these things that Until you stop to think about it, they seem really obvious and really basic. But for someone who's never been there before, it's exactly what they need. And we know many listeners have been on multiple backpacking trips. But this podcast is all about getting out on your first backpacking trip. We have a lot of listeners who've maybe done some day hikes and maybe some car camping, but they haven't done that first backpacking trip yet. And for those listeners... The question is, well, what what is the trip going to look like? Like just the basics, the stuff that, you know, after you've been on a few trips, you kind of forget that that stuff even happens because it seems so basic. But when you're new to it, you just don't know. And when you're so new to something and someone's explaining it to you, it's almost like they can't be too specific or too basic. You want to know, okay, when I actually do pump water for the first time? Where do I set everything out? And do I need to stand in the stream to get the fresh water or can I get it from the edge? You know, just all those little things that maybe an experienced backpacker may take for granted. So we're going to do our best right now to explain the anatomy of an overnight backpacking trip. This is just a simple two-day, one-night trip close to home short trail that can just get you out on your first backpacking trip. So low risk here, but we promise great rewards. So when we say close to home, we are saying pick something that where it's going to take less than an hour and a half to drive to the trailhead. I don't know if everyone is within an hour and a half of a wilderness area, but pick something close to home because otherwise, you know, just for that one overnight trip, you're going to spend all of your time just driving in the car and it's not really going to seem quite worth it. And when we say a short trail, 
you know, two or three miles is going to be great. It's going to feel like you really got away from civilization, but it's not going to take you all day to get there. In fact, our very, very first backpacking trip as a family was with my brother, and we did that one-mile trail, and I almost didn't even count that as a backpacking trip. But looking back, I really wish that I would have given that little hike the credit it deserved. It was our first toe dip into backpacking, and it was only a one-mile trail to this little meadow near some water, and it was beautiful. It was perfect. The trip begins before the trailhead and before you've even gotten in the car, and that's when you pack. Here is an opportunity to, um, like if you're used to car camping, treat this almost like a car camping trip where you're going to walk a little bit further to your campsite than normal. So you can pack your car camping stuff, maybe leave the Coleman two-burner stove at home and really try and fit everything into your pack. But if all you have is car camping stuff, Doing that little one-mile trail and bringing all that stuff is going to cut down on the stress pre-trip. And then when you're ready to kind of shave off the ounces and shave off the pounds, then maybe that's when you would be a little bit more finicky or picky about what exactly goes into your pack for which trips. Yeah, I can carry 40 pounds for a mile. That's not going to be a problem for me. Whereas on a longer trip, I would try to see if I could whittle that down a little. Once you're packed, then it's time to drive to the trailhead. You know, along the way, you might stop for dinner. I mean, there's no rule that says that dinner has to happen on the trail or at the campsite. I think that's a great idea. It just cuts down on the stress, maybe a little bit of the anxiety of that first trip. Yeah, or lunch. I mean, maybe you took the day off from work and you're leaving in the morning. Hey, that's an even better idea. Yeah. And then you get to the trailhead. And this is where, you know, the real trip starts, right? But you've put in so many hours already just prepping and driving. It's important to recognize that. Yeah, being at the trailhead is a major milestone on your backpacking trip. And oftentimes at a trailhead, there will be a big sign. And the sign has information on it that's specific to that trail. However, other trails that you might go on might not even have a sign at all. And these may be trails that you find in a hiking book or a backpacking book. And so that book is going to provide you with all the information that you need to know about water sources and things you need to be aware of. If there is a signboard at the trailhead, take a few minutes to read through it. Uh, when we did that in the Redwoods, it motivated our <laughs> youngest to pull his socks up over the bottoms of his pant legs so that he wouldn't get ticks. I love it. <laughs> Right. And he didn't get ticks. He didn't. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we didn't either. But the signboard at the trailhead may also have a map of the trail, so that's good as a, as a refresher. Of course, you should be bringing your own map of the trail with you. And then sometimes there's a little uh, registration book where you can sign in, you know, sign the log to say that you're hiking that trail. Now, I want to take a step back because before you even get on the trail, you need to notify your friends or family that you will be on a backpacking trip. And either a quick text to your mom, your roommate, your significant other, whatever, those people probably should know that you're going to be gone. And then slip a little note underneath your car seat just saying who you are, what trail you'll be on, and when you expect to be back. And this is especially important if you are backpacking alone. Then it's time to start hiking. 
And if you've picked a trail that's one or two or three miles, you may be tempted to think, oh, yeah, okay, on a brisk pace, I can walk four miles an hour. Therefore, a one-mile trail is going to take me 15 minutes. And if you think that, you will probably be wrong. <laughs> it makes sense in your mind that that's kind of a good brisk walking speed, but it's never how it goes on the trail. It's usually about one and a half to two miles an hour, depending on your physical condition and the load that you're carrying. And the trail, I should add that too. The trail dictates the speed a lot of times if there's lots of you know, roots and craggy, steep parts, then that'll slow you down a little bit too. And along the way, you'll have points where you stop walking. You might stop to take a picture somewhere or to look at something that you noticed on the side of the trail or to just be in awe at some amazing view. You know, as you get up to a viewpoint, all of those things, you want to just leave plenty of time to make those stops and enjoy the trail, not just the destination. Right. On our recent anniversary hike, it was a really short, short hike. And we were walking along and we saw this little salamander. And we spent a little while looking at it and then we hiked on. We also stop pretty frequently for water and food breaks. It's just nice every once in a while to stop, take off your pack so that your body can kind of uncompress, I guess, and uh, pull out the water bottle, take a little drink of water, pull out a few snacks. After, I'd say, what, maybe five minutes or so or less, you probably want to have your pack back on and be walking again. Otherwise... Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, otherwise, <laughs> for one, you'll cool down a lot. So if you've been hiking and you've taken off a few layers so that you're at the right temperature, then when you stop hiking, you're fine for a few minutes. But if you stop for too long, then you start to cool down. Then you're going to have to put all your layers back on, and then you start hiking, and then you got to take those layers off again. And your muscles will cool down a little bit, and then you'll start to kind of get, I don't know, not as lubed up in the muscles and you'll get a little bit stiff the longer you sit there and it'll be harder to get up. So those short breaks are important, but emphasis on the word short. Okay, well, what usually happens when we get into camp? Oh, yeah, it's the Josh versus the tent site dance. <laughs> he does this little dance where he like, taps his feet and kind of swishes them on the campsite and moves pine cones out of the way. And yeah, it, it's entertaining to watch. We should definitely make a video of that. <laughs> I never thought of it that way, but it is kind of like a dance and it probably does look a little ritualistic. It does. Yeah. So from my viewpoint, Josh goes to several different campsites and usually they're maybe 20 feet apart from each other. And there, there are no signs on these campsites. Usually they're just kind of bare areas, a few feet from a tree or maybe under a couple trees. And yeah, you go to each one and you kind of look at the ground and figure out which one is flat instead of sloped. You make sure there are no dips in the ground because dips are where the water collects. And then after you kind of determine which one is going to be the most suitable, the quintessential campsite then comes this little dance thing that you do with your feet <laughs> so he's moving pine cones and bits of forest debris out of the campsite so that we can set up our tent and it will be nice and smooth did i get your ritual right 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, you did. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm doing. Yes. You know, first scoping it out to see where the, the most appropriate site will be. And then once I've kind of determined that site, then it's, yeah, kicking the pine cones out of the way, the little sticks and rocks and stuff, uh, getting ready to put the tent down. Of course, if we're hammock camping, then it's a whole different ritual, I suppose, because then we're not looking for flat ground, but we're looking for trees that are the right distance apart with a good space above them so that we can set up the rain fly over the hammock and with, you know, somewhat even ground below us because you do eventually need to get in and out of your hammock. Yeah, all of that. Sometimes we can divide up the labor in camp, and sometimes we both work together on something. So one of us could be setting up the tent or the hammocks while the other one starts on dinner, or maybe we set them up together and then start on dinner. If it's in the summertime when it's going to get dark really late, then maybe we come into camp and immediately start on dinner and set up the tents later. And since this is an overnight backpacking trip that we're talking about, I think it's important to point out that food on an overnighter doesn't have to be freeze-dried or dehydrated. You can bring fresh food. You can bring fresh vegetables, fruits, raw meat if you want to. If you really feel it necessary, you could bring canned food. You know, there are things that you can do on overnighters that you really can't do on longer trips. Evening time, if you're lucky, is going to give you some free time. You've set up where you're going to sleep, You've made your dinner, eaten your dinner, and I guess we forgot to mention cleaned up from dinner. And that always takes longer than you think it's going to take because you can't just throw the dishes in the sink or in the dishwasher. All of these little, little things that you do that at home are just super quick. Toss something in the trash, toss something in the sink, you're done. But when you're backpacking, that takes longer. But once you get all that done... Then, yeah, it's time to sit around the campfire, take a walk around the lake, explore up and down the stream, check out a little mountain nearby, all of those fun activities that I love doing. And now might also be a great time to go pump some water. Having an extra liter of pumped water before you go to bed is going to make your morning go a lot smoother. You know, bedtime is one of my favorite times on a backpacking trip. And I think it's because we follow the natural light rhythms. So as the sun gets towards setting, we don't turn on a bunch of lights and stay up a few more hours. We just have our headlamps and maybe a lantern or something. So as it gets dark, we go to bed. And I love just following that natural rhythm that nature provides. It seems kind of odd sometimes because you'll start to feel tired, it'll get dark. And you check to see what time it is, and you're like, oh, it's only 7.20. Well, good night, guys. I'm going to bed. (laughs) I've got nothing better to do. Right. (laughs) Going to sleep sounds great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And maybe we won't provide a lot of detail on how the night goes, but on your first backpacking trip, that's going to be a big question. What's my first night of sleeping like? So go check out episode number 103, which was the episode all about sleeping. And we covered some great details about what to expect and also what to do to make your night go better. And it seems like sleeping would be the easiest part of a backpacking trip. I mean, no navigation involved, no pumping water involved, no tripping over stumps. It's actually a little bit of a challenge. So definitely check out that episode because you'll learn a lot from it. And don't get discouraged if you don't sleep well your first night of backpacking. It takes a few nights to really kind of get into that groove. Well, eventually morning comes, and sometimes I look forward to morning and sometimes I don't. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it depends on the time of year and uh, specifically the temperature. 
when it's cold outside, which is pretty often on a backpacking trip, it can be really hard to make the decision to get out of the sleeping bag and get out and start moving. You've been still all night, and so you're not really generating much heat from your body. And, and when you first get out, it's usually cold, and it usually takes a while. I try to walk around. Go take a potty break, of course, and go do that somewhere far from camp so I can get moving, uh, walk or, or run in place or, or jog, whatever, to just kind of get the blood flowing so I can warm up. Once you're done with breakfast, it's time to pack up, which is not always a, a really fun thing to do. <laughs> it seems like, you know, everything was packed perfectly at home, and then it kind of explodes out of your pack when you get to camp, and now you're supposed to get it back into your pack. Except this has actually gotten better since we started backpacking. When we were car camping, we brought this, you know, huge tent for our whole family to fit into, and in order to get it back in the bag, we had to fold it this special certain way. And Josh is a folder. I am a crammer. And so we would fold it up perfectly. But then when we got our first backpacking tent and the lady at REI said, you actually don't fold these. You just cram them in the bag. And it's better to cram them because then they don't get creases that are in the same place over time. I was like, yes, awesome. This is great. I love it. So it's gotten a lot easier. You just cram everything into bags. I think it's easier than car camping in a lot of ways. Right. Take out your sleeping bag and stuff it into your pack. Uh, your sleeping pad needs to be rolled up or take the air out if it's an air mattress and stuff it into your pack. Take down the tent or the hammock and stuff it into your pack. Yep. You're ready to go. <laughs> Usually the hike back goes faster for us. Maybe, you know, you're going downhill and on the way in you were coming uphill, so maybe that has something to do with it. Or maybe you've already seen the terrain, or maybe it's just that it's familiar because you saw it yesterday and, and it feels like it goes quicker. I don't know, but it seems like we usually make it back down to the trailhead a fair bit faster than we made it up the trail. Once we get back to the car, sometimes, especially depending on the weather and how far we're going to be driving, we might have a change or, or spares of things in the car. For example, um, a spare pair of shoes that are really lightweight and not too tight on our feet because our feet will have swollen a little during the hike. So it feels really good to change into that fresh pair of shoes. Uh, we might have some food stashed in the car. That's really nice to come back to as well. And hopefully when you come back to your car, you won't come back to any unfortunate car problems or vandals. I think vandalism is pretty rare on the smaller trails and maybe a little more common on the larger trails or in national parks. But don't get back to your car so late that if something had happened to it, you're now stuck for a second night. Give yourself a few hours of buffer there before the sun's going to set to get back to your car and know that everything's okay. You know, if the battery died or if a tire yeah. went flat or any of those things, then you've still got a few hours to fix it or find another hiker who's going to come by. That reminds me, I saw a product recently called WeGo, W-E-E-G-O, that is this battery that you can put in your glove compartment. And if your car battery dies, you can hook it up and it's a one-time jump start. So pretty cool. Like, I think that would be a smart thing if you do a lot of trail time, especially in remote areas. That would be a really great item to have just stashed in your car. And one more reason to not get back to the car too late is that you still need to drive home. And if you're super tired, 
then you're putting yourself at risk. So make sure you've got, you know, that extra reserve left to make it home safely. And then once you get home, <laughs> oh, your trip is not over yet. And we'll cover that last part of your quote unquote trip in the top five list. Right. Coming home and unpacking what mm -hmm. that means. Well, that's just a general look at the anatomy of an overnight backpacking trip. We kind of did it in broad brush strokes. And maybe you have more questions about some of those finer details, like what exactly are you supposed to do if fill-in-the-blank happens or if you forget to bring your fill-in-the-blank. So if you have questions, go ahead and share them on our Facebook page or our Twitter page, and we can help answer. And I think some of our other listeners would love to help you figure out some of these, you know, these little nitty gritty questions that you're just super curious about before you go on your first backpacking trip. For today's top five list, we want to share the top five things that might surprise you about your first overnight backpacking trip. And some of this you may have picked up from the conversation we just had. Some of this stuff might actually surprise you. So the number one thing that might surprise you about your first overnight backpacking trip is nature's noises. And this is going to be most surprising right around dusk when the sun has set and you're in this dark forest and you're getting ready for bed and all of a sudden you hear a twig snap or you hear some rustling in the bushes or you hear something that sounds like footsteps right outside your tent or you hear gnawing noises. All of those things, all of those noises can be really unsettling and the fact is, a lot of those noises are the same things that you heard during the day, but you are so busy pumping water, hiking, laughing with your friends, chewing on Snickers, whatever you were doing, that you didn't even notice those sounds. But now that it's dark, and now that you're ready to go to bed, all of a sudden, it's like the sounds amplify, and they can really cause some heart palpitations. Do you feel like this is a surprise that lessens over time, like that you've kind of gotten over it? Yeah, first few trips were very scary. <laughs> uh, the sounds would keep me awake at night. I'd have to sleep with earbuds in. And over time, I can still hear those same sounds, but... You I've... don't play the same scripts in your mind yeah, that you used to play. <laughs> I don't play that game anymore or that play those scripts in my mind. I kind of decided that I'm too mature to be freaking out about imaginary animals. <laughs> and that was kind of what I had to tell myself. Like, I'm too grown up for this. These are imaginary threats. Many of them are imaginary. They're not really animals. They're just the wind rustling in the trees or some strange sound that gets produced by a stream. And there's no animal producing it, but you envision that there is this ferocious animal that's going to tear into your tent. It's probably not going to happen. Probably not. Well, the number two thing that might surprise you on your first overnight backpacking trip is the amount of trash that you'll produce. It's not that you actually produce more trash on a backpacking trip than you do at home. In fact, I'm sure it's quite the opposite. But at home, every bit of trash that you produce, you can just toss it in the trash can and forget about it. And you really forget about the fact that it's kind of building up. 
Well, when you're on the backpacking trip, you can't toss any of it. And so every time you generate a little bit of trash, you have to go find your trash bag, you know, the little, the little bag that you're keeping all your trash in, stick your little bit of trash in there, seal it back up and put it away again, make sure it's not going to blow away in the wind. <laughs> and, and then that happens every time that you generate some little piece of trash. So it feels like you're producing mountains of trash on your trip. And, you know, when you have to carry it around, it, it could probably feel like that, too. The number three thing that might surprise you about your first overnight backpacking trip is how long a mile really is. And in the same vein, you may be surprised at how many things you brought that you didn't actually use, that you thought you would. Those two thoughts, you know, wow, this mile is really long, and wow, I can't believe I brought my handheld fan, you know, or whatever it is that you decided was unnecessary. Uh, those thoughts could go through your mind and maybe it will change your packing list for your next backpacking trip. The number four thing that might surprise you about your first overnight backpacking trip is how rejuvenating slash thrilling slash peaceful slash cleansing it all is. You may not even be able to label your trip with a word. It's just a feeling, maybe. It's, I guess, kind of like hitting the reset button on life. And it's so different from any other kind of physical activity that you do because you're entering another world. It's, it's so different from, say, like a sport. You are walking into another animal's home the forest world, and you have just a completely unique experience in the wilderness. Isn't it just amazing what an effect just an overnight trip can have? It's so true. But once you get back home, the number five thing that might <laughs> surprise you about your first overnight trip is just how long it takes to recover. And by recover, we mean unpack, clean up, put away, and even sleep. Even if you got a good night's sleep on that one night of your backpacking trip, it just seems like it you have to you have to kind of catch up. You have to sleep a little bit longer once you get home. So yeah, it's gear recovery and it's physical recovery. And backpacking is interesting because you can drain and recharge at the same time. Well, am I missing anything from the top 5 list? Is there anything else that might surprise you about your first overnight backpacking trip? Hmm. The only thing I might add is you may be surprised how quickly your thoughts turn to your next trip. <laughs> that is good warning for our audience. Thank you. Yeah, because you might end up starting a podcast because of that first trip. <laughs> There's always the danger of that. Yes. <laughs> for today's Summit Gear Review, we'll be reviewing Fitz Socks and we'll be reviewing their Light Hiker Crew. And I guess what Fitz is best known for is socks that are shaped like a foot. Like if you were to pour sand and pebbles into the sock, they could stand up on their own. And the sock that we're reviewing today, the Light Hiker Crew, is the number one most popular sock for hikers that Fitz sells. The Fitz Light Hiker is 65% merino, 27% nylon, 6% polyester, and 2% lycra. And this four fiber blend really gives the sock um, the ability to preserve its shape and provides a lot of durability. 
The Fitz Hiker has a cushioned footbed, and there's extra cushioning in the heel, toe, arch, and the Achilles tendon. And then Josh, if you were to build the perfect sock, where would you put the reinforcement? This is not a trick question. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I was wondering. I would reinforce the spots that get holes first. Exactly. That's so the, the toe <laughs> yes. and right under my heel. Yeah. Well, they did it. So these socks will last for a long time because they won't get those little holes where you expect them to get holes. The Fitz Light Hikers have something called the full contact fit, which means that every single part of the sock is touching your foot. So you're not going to have places where it bunches up. The area where your foot bends, you know, like the ankle area, that's always where the sock bunches up on other socks. Yeah, right on the top or front at the bottom of your leg and the top of your foot right there. Yes. Yeah, where you tie your shoelace, kind of that area up there. But these socks, because of this full contact fit, is going to perfectly fit your foot. And it's never going to be loose on your foot, so it won't rub you the wrong way when you're hiking. The Fitz Light Hiker Crew also has flat seams. They're completely breathable, moisture wicking, and quick drying. And because these socks have a high percentage of merino, they're also going to be odor resistant and antimicrobial. The sizing on the socks is unisex. They do have some women's patterns, but the sizing for all of their socks is unisex, and it goes small to extra, extra large. For mass, the Fitz Light Hiker Crews weigh 2.1 ounces, or 59 grams, and for maintenance, These are washable wool socks. And one of the things that I've noticed about wool socks, they don't stink. And so you can wear them for an extra day or two days or three days. Push it however long you feel comfortable. But you can probably get about three days out of a pair of wool socks before they'll start to feel um, crusty (laughs) or kind of sandy, gritty, especially if you're hiking a lot. You might want to wash them more often than every three days. For investment, these socks cost $21, which is definitely more than the average pair of socks, but I like to think of it as three socks in one because you get three days of wearing and then you wash it once, so you can think of it that way. And for trial, this sock is a classic piece of backpacking gear. I loved it because it didn't do that bunchy-uppy thing on my foot that so many other pairs of socks do. I love that the Fitz socks are reinforced so that they're more durable in those places where you really need it to be durable and that it stays snug even when you wear it for several days in a row. And that usually doesn't happen with socks. Usually socks get looser the more you wear them. I'm curious, did you test out the three-day thing? Definitely. I love wool because you can wear it for multiple days in a row. And I am a lazy, corner-cutting person. And if I can get out of doing laundry, I will. Whatever it takes. So yes, I have tested it out. So there are so many things to love about this sock. It's comfortable, it's wicking, it's reinforced in the right places, it's padded in the right places, and it's just a classic hiking sock that you cannot go wrong with. Okay, so what did the hiker say when he got a hole in his sock? A hole in his sock? Uh Uh-huh. What? Darn. Oh, no. dear. Oh, no. <laughs> well, actually, we will have an upcoming episode where we talk about sock repair. So 
If you have a holy hiking sock, don't throw it out. We'll teach you how to darn your socks. And we'll have the link to the Fitz Light Hiker Crew socks in our show notes today. And today's episode is at thefirst40miles.com slash 124. For today's Backpack Hack of the Week, Backpacker Magazine's Get Out More Tour. Backpacker Magazine sponsors events throughout the United States, and it's called the Get Out More Tour, and they've done it for years now. And this year kicks off on April 4th in Austin, Texas. Then they're headed to Arizona, California, back to Arizona, then Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, Tennessee, Iowa, Nebraska, Missouri, Washington State, and on. You're actually going to hit Rhode Island on July 19th. Nice. I know. Pretty cool. What about Delaware? Uh, No, (laughs) they're not going to be in Delaware, Uh. but they're not going to be in Oregon either. So I don't know how they picked the states that they went to, but it's a really cool event. We actually went to it when we lived in Utah. It was like 10 years ago, I think, at an REI. And it was the same guy, Randy Propster. No way. Who was doing it back then. And that was when our family was doing these car camping trips together. It was a lot of fun. So Randy Propster does this 75-minute seminar, and he'll share tips. He shares regional trip advice and talks about outdoor gear. And he will be going to 45 different outdoor retailers throughout the U.S. He'll be doing five on-the-trail adventures, and then he'll be doing five different outdoor festivals over the summer. It's a great opportunity to kind of get to know gear, get to know your area, and uh, learn a few things that maybe you didn't know. So we'll include a link to the Backpacker Magazine Get Out More Tour in today's show notes. Again, that's thefirst40miles.com slash 124. And we'll leave you today with a little trail wisdom from our good friend on the trail, Robert Frost. He said, Nature is always hinting at us. It hints over and over again, and suddenly we take the hint. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you've been on a backpacking trip, share your story at thefirst40miles.com slash story. We'll see you next time on The First 40 Miles. You're also going to stop <laughs> I didn't finish the word. You're also going to stop. <laughs> okay. How did an ant? There's an ant on my show notes. I don't know. How did that it's happen? It's weird where they come from sometimes. <laughs> I have no idea where they come from. I don't know. That is weird. Okay. <laughs>